My name is Dave Dorst. If you are new, I would love to meet you. I'm the associate pastor here. And as Frank mentioned in his prayer, Dr. Dave Silvernail is away. Uh, I had, had a pastor's conference, and now he's uh, hanging out with his folks down in Florida. Uh, pastor Jeff Lee, our youth pastor, is on a high school retreat. So you notice not too many high schoolers here this morning. But let's... Uh, Roll into the sermon this morning. We are in the book of Hebrews. You should have an outline. And as we... Actually, for Potomac Hills standards, I'd say we're flying through the book of Hebrews. Um, usually this would take us a year and a half, but we're gonna, I think we're going to do it in six months. So, taking chunks, it's good. But there's a lot here, and there's a lot to get into. And so... Uh, We're just going to take the first 12 verses of chapter 9 today. If you remember from American literature, Edgar Allan Poe's classic short story, The Telltale Heart. A man lives in a house with an older man whom he generally likes, but comes to despise him and he hates the man Because his eye is like a vulture, and he just so despises the eye that he decides he needs to kill this man. And um, so he sort of goes in every night and peeks peeks in until one night the the, the eye is looking at him. And so he, he does the deed, and he takes the man out, and he covers up the evidence and ends up burying the man under the floorboards. You know Edgar Allan Poe, a little dark. But one of the neighbors has heard a scream, so the police come. But the man is so confident that he won't be caught that he invites the the police in. They sit down and have a chat right over the floorboard, right over where the man is buried. However, as the conversation with the police continue the man starts to hear a ringing in his ear. And it becomes so incessant that he begins to suspect that it is the old man's heart beating. And he's sure that the police can hear it as well. And he's so tormented by the noise and is convinced that he just breaks down and confesses and shows them where the body is. Now, I don't, probably this is Edgar Allan Poe describing insanity, but I think it is a powerful picture of guilt. Despite someone's best efforts to suppress it and deny it, guilt can haunt a person for years, even a lifetime. You hear about people confessing crimes Years, decades later, because they cannot stand the guilt that they feel. Two years ago, uh, New Jersey man Stephen Goff turned himself in for murdering someone 23 years earlier. He, he actually he got away with the crime. They don't think that there would have been any way to trace it to him. He wasn't a suspect. He just was so tormented with guilt that he turned himself in. Well, I think people deal with guilt a lot of ways. They don't always turn themselves in. And we find ways 
to ease our conscience for a time, perhaps. Probably the most popular way is to just talk yourself out of feeling guilty. It's not my fault. Give yourself a break. You say, I shouldn't feel guilty about that. Which may be true in some situations. Certainly victims and people who've been abused sometimes take on unwarranted guilt. But I'm but not so true in situations where you have hurt or continue to hurt others. Others fixate on someone or something to distract them. So they don't have to think about what they've done. They, maybe they pour their energy into a new project or an addiction. Or they shift the blame so they don't have to feel the guilt of what they've done. I actually uh, went on wikihow.com. Have you seen that website? It's how to do things. And, you know, I'm trying to get to this century and look everything up on the internet because it's very helpful. And so I found seven easy steps for dealing with guilt. It even has pictures. Um, Step one, determine whether or not you should actually feel guilty. Step two, Engage in self-exploration to really get in touch with your feelings. Make sure it's actually guilt and not worry or some other emotion. Step three, affirm that the event happened and that you feel guilty. You might want to write it down if that helps. One of them was, I ran over Fido and mom and dad are upset or something. But you can look it up. Step four, Ask if there's anything you can do to make this situation better. Step five, modify your behavior so that it won't happen again. Step six, if you still feel guilty, affirm that it's not necessary or productive. And step seven, move on with your life and engage in positive, affirming activities. So there you go. But can it really be that simple? Of course not. This is my intro. (laughs) Can it be that simple, though? Acknowledge it, deal with it, and move on. No, I don't think it is. For a lot of the heavy guilt that we carry, um, and even as you think about the best scenario that that can happen where someone comes clean, admits what they did, confesses it, even goes and asks for forgiveness from the victim or pays restitution, submits themselves to punishment for their crime and and pays their debt to society. Even then, you cannot undo what you did and you cannot remove the stain from the record. Is it possible to clear your conscience for good or are we stuck with no way to work past our sins and have peace. Well, today's passage looks at the way that God's people dealt with their guilt for some 1,500 years. And it makes some surprising observations about how ineffective the system was and makes a conclusion about what the shortcomings of the system must lead to. So turn with me in your Bible to Hebrew chapter 9. It's in your outline as well. 
Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations thus Having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for this present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the book of Hebrews that we have been working through. Thank you that it was written to encourage people who were doubting, people who were ready to fall back into their old way and abandon Christ in the new way. Because we're a people that doubt as well, and we forget, and we wander to strengthen us as we read, as we think, as we work our way through this passage. Open our hearts to what you want us to receive from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here is the layout of the tabernacle, right? Which was the building for the priests to offer worship during Moses' time. This is not to be confused with Solomon's temple, which was built some 500 years later. Um, But it sort of gets adapted. But he's specifically referring to the tabernacle. And it was essentially a tent. And that was very appropriate because the Israelite community was wandering in the desert and it had to be portable, right? And so uh, it's where God dwelt among his people. In Exodus 25:8, God had told Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. 
You can read all about the specific instructions for building the tabernacle, the dimensions of the furniture and the, the linen hangings, the curtains, all of that. It's Exodus 25 through 27. But let's get a picture of the tabernacle. Uh, new technology, I'm going to count to three and it's going to appear. One, two, three. Work? All right, good. So, now from the way the writer describes it, it sounds like there's only two parts, but as you can see, there are three sections, and he doesn't talk much about the outer court. Uh, the courtyard contained the altar where the sacrifices were made by the priests, the majority of them, and the bronze laver, I don't know how well you can read that, but um, the bronze altar is the square and then the circle moving from right to left. The laver is where they washed clean the, the priests. But the author of Hebrews is much more interested in what happens inside of the chambers, the two chambers of the tabernacle. So first he describes the activity of the priests in the outer chamber, which is in the middle, the holy place. And he speaks of the regular sacrifices in the holy place. Uh, so we look back at verses 1 and 2 and then jump to 6. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. So the, the holy place was roughly 30 feet long by 15 feet wide, so not a huge area. I'm not going to go in real detail, but just so you get a sense of the scope. And so the, he mentions a few of the items. The lampstand, also known as the menorah, is, uh, it had seven branches on it. Um, and the priests had to keep these burning continually to symbolize the ongoing light of God's favor towards his people. And then the second item was the table set with pure gold and had uh, plates and dishes of pure gold. And its main purpose was to hold the bread of the presence, who were also called the showbread. And this was 12 loaves symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. And the loaves were placed on the table every Sabbath and eaten by the priests. So essentially, the priests who were on rotation would perform regular duties in that area. The holy place was not an area that the common Israelite could go. Only the priests were allowed in. But really, the holy place is a transition room as well. And now the writer turns his attention to what he really wants to talk about, the, the more important, the, the high priest's activity in the most holy place. And those were the yearly sacrifices. And so we look back at verses 3 through 5 and 7 through 10. It's the majority of our text this morning. Let me read those again. As you, as you see the holy of holies, most holy place on the left. Behind the second curtain was a sec second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. 
of these things we cannot now speak in detail. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Now, if you're looking very closely, you may see a little discrepancy because the author of Hebrews mentions that the altar of incense is inside the Holy of Holies in this picture, which I got off the internet, of course, is, has it in the other place. But that's where Exodus describes it. And we think that the reason the author of Hebrews mentions it with the most holy place is that the incense was lit and then it flowed into the Holy of Holies and filled the room. So, but the most holy place was half the size. You can kind of get a sense for that. 15 feet on each side of the other. And this is where the Lord chose to dwell. And there was really one main object in this room, the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so who over the age of, say, 16 has never seen the greatest movie of all time? Raiders of the Lost Ark? Don't raise your hand. Don't embarrass yourself. But I remember when I first saw it, even I think I was a teenager, and I remember thinking very clearly, this is a Hollywood movie that actually takes the power and wrath of God seriously. I mean, I think before that we had George Burns and Oh God, You Devil and just ridiculous stuff. And now we have Raiders and God's wrath. Is, I, was, I was stunned. I didn't know that was possible. And I don't want to spoil it if you haven't seen it, but I have to talk about it a little bit because when the Nazis finally find the Ark, they steal it from Indiana Jones, and um, they want to get a sneak peek into it before they turn it over to Hitler, I guess. Um, big mistake, if you remember it. Some people can't even sit through the end of this movie, but um, Indy, Indiana Jones, realizes that the Ark had the Ten Commandments, the law, and it was God's presence. It symbolized, and, and God was actually there. I'll, I'll get to that. And he, so he realizes that this is not something to be looked on and experienced lightly. So he and the woman with him, they close your eyes and they don't see anything that happens and they survive. And so we have a description, a little bit here, of the, of the ark. And on the ark was a cover called the mercy seat with a golden cherub, an image of an angel on each side. In Exodus 25, 22, the Lord had said, There I will meet with you, and from ab above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Covenant, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So God shows up 
speaks in the, on the mercy seat. Now, it mentions inside the ark were the two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, but two other symbols were stored inside the ark. They mention an urn or a container of manna from the time when God had sent manna daily to provide. This is symbolizing God's provision. It's a reminder. And Aaron's staff that had budded. And it's it's reminder that God chose Aaron and his line as the priests. So, all right, we can take the picture down. And so the most holy place was the room that no one could enter except once a year, one man could go in. And only with a lot of preparation and restrictions. Once a year, God set aside the Day of Atonement. Uh, You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 16, and it's still considered a great Jewish holiday, Yom Kippur. The high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year to make atonement for the people's sins. It was a day in which all Israel was ceremonially cleansed so that their relationship with God could continue. Now, ironically, this very day, as great as it was and as much as God set it in place, also he meant to display the weakest points of the Old Covenant, the need for continual sacrifices to ensure forgiveness of God's people. And so the ultimate lesson of the Day of Atonement was that throughout the age of the Old Covenant, there was no direct access to God. Even the high priest had to bring blood with him, new sacrifices that only covered the sins from that year. And it's easy to skip past another detail. One of the details in verse 3 is that separating the two chambers is a curtain or a veil. Separating the Holy of Holies, symbolizing the separation between God and humans. Because of sin, a holy God and sinful humans cannot dwell together. In case you think that's just God being mean or elitist. Consider what happens to your relationships when someone has betrayed you or tries to hurt you or steals from you or any number of things. Your relationship cannot continue until you've worked through what happened and be reconciled. And God is stating that here. Humans have sinned against me, and since I am holy and cannot be in the presence of sin without some atoning for that sin, humans cannot enter my presence. So as verse 8 says, the Holy Spirit was using this whole tabernacle sanctuary as a visual explanation that the way to be in the presence of the Most High God was not yet opened wide and for all, but that it would be. In the meantime, in Highwell Jones's words, a worship which was imperfect and could not cleanse, which was imposed, was required in law, 
that was impermanent was in place. It could not take away sin, and yet it commanded obedience. It was the only system of ritual that God ever appointed, and he deliberately made it unable to save. While the sacrificial system did not ever have within itself the power to cleanse the defiled conscience of the sinner, it pointed daily and annually throughout its long history to what did. Now, I don't usually use uh, the message. It's a modern paraphrase. I don't know if people are still using that a lot, but I, I, I read it for this passage, and I like, let me read you what it says for verses 9 and 10. Under this system, the gifts and sacrifices can't really get to the heart of the matter, can't assuage the conscience of the people, but are limited to matters of ritual and behavior. It's essentially a temporary arrangement until a complete overhaul could be made. Okay, great. So there needs to be a complete overhaul of the system. When is that going to happen? Well, we look at verses 11-12, when the ultimate high priest comes. 11 and 12, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now, if you've been with us for our study of Hebrews the last few weeks, you've heard a good bit about Christ as our high priest. But here we see that Christ performed the actions of the high priest that we've already talked about. Going into the Holy of Holies to offer a sacrifice, but he didn't do it in the tabernacle. And he didn't even do it in Solomon's temple. Right? He did it on the cross. And he didn't sacrifice an animal. He sacrificed himself. He was both priest and sacrifice. And he didn't do it for himself. He had no sin to atone for. He did it for his people. To secure redemption and forgiveness. Not just for the year but for all time. What's the very end? The, an eternal redemption for his people. Do you remember the little detail in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51? After Jesus breathed his last breath and died on the cross, we are told immediately, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain separating the Holy of Holies was torn down. Now, Matthew doesn't explain it. And so, you may be reading this for the first time thinking, wow, that's a pretty strong earthquake that would take down the curtain. Um, But we know that it's not natural causes. We know God ripped that thing in half because of Christ's sacrificing and his 
accomplishing salvation. There's no need for the curtain that separates men from God. And again, God was giving that the visual image. Jesus is the high priest who has made intercession for us, and now we are invited into God's presence. Israel, for thousands of years, had been kept from God's presence because of their sin, though they too were justified by faith. But the old covenant was the shadow. Looking forward, the new covenant is the reality. Under the old covenant, the way to God is undisclosed. But the new covenant, Jesus is the way. And whereas before, blood symbolized cleansing, now Jesus' blood brings true cleansing. And where the sacrifices symbolized forgiveness, we know that Jesus' sacrifice truly brings forgiveness of sins. If you've ever wondered what happened to all that animal sacrifice from the Old Testament, this is it. We don't need it. We've got the reality, the true sacrifice. So back to our original question of how do we get rid of our guilt, the stain of our sin. Well, we either pay for that sin ourselves or we get someone else to pay it for us right that's what the sacrifice of lambs and goats taught very visually is they will take your sin on them and pay for it but again it was the imperfect pointing to the perfect solution that christ became the ultimate substitute and sacrifice for our sins all of the sins of this people, from the petty ones to the most scandalous ones, were placed on Christ when he died. Your darkest, vilest action, word, thought, was nailed to the cross. Jesus has dealt with our sin, and now he whispers, I've made you clean. I've provided forgiveness. You are now able to approach God the Father. So are you ready to come in? Come to God and experience Him directly. Still our mediator, but our mediator is Christ, not a human priest. We can go without fear with the knowledge that your sin, guilt, and shame have been removed through Christ's death in your place. I think this is huge. The way we see God determines a great deal of how we worship and how we live. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's still the perfect God, holy God of justice who will judge sinners. He will condemn sinners who are not reconciled to Him. But He is also still the loving merciful God of grace who provided our forgiveness when we didn't deserve it by giving up His Son to death who didn't deserve it. 
justice and mercy met at the cross. Now the fear of the Lord is still the beginning of wisdom. I mean, imagine the Israelites, the fear of going into the Holy of Holies, knowing they would be probably killed if they stepped in. And we still need a fear, a respect of God, but it is not a fear that keeps us from God. It is a fear that reminds us to approach God rightly through Christ. In Him, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. The key reminders throughout the book of Hebrews, knowing that God will not throw us out, but that He will embrace us as sons and daughters whom He loves. I come by the blood. I come by the cross where your mercy flows from hands pierced for me for I dare not stand on my righteousness. My every hope rests on what Christ has done and I come by the blood. Take a few minutes minutes to pray and thank God for this truth and then I'll close us.